We are in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 17 through 20, and then we will talk about them. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see you more clearly. Give us the ability to grasp you as you more nearly are. To understand you and your ways. May we gain these insights today as we look at this portion of Scripture. I do pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 17 says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul preceded this statement about the uniqueness of God and the greatness of God and the worth of God with an acknowledgement and the greatness of his own sinfulness and unworthiness. An unworthiness to receive mercy and grace from God. And so to get the most out of this verse, these descriptions of God, I am encouraging you to look at these words in the same way Paul wrote them, with his own unworthiness, his own sinfulness in mind. So let's look at each of the individual phrases in the verse. Now to the king eternal. A uniqueness of God is that he is eternal in both directions. We are created for eternity, but we have a beginning. God has no beginning. He has no end. He is not only the king of the ages who will reign forever, he has reigned forever. And to give you a sense of what forever means, Psalm chapter 10, verse 16 says, The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished From his land. I think that's an interesting statement. So if you consider the lifespan of a nation like China, and by the way, what was the Lord's land? It was the promised land. And he was king over it the whole time, from the time he sent Abraham until the time he brought the children of Israel back there. We have approximately 400 years. And he had judged that land as so decadent, so evil, the people so sinful that he he intended to drive them out and destroy them in order to bring an end to the sin. 
Yet he gave them another 400 years to come to repentance. But my point is he was king over that whole time. Think of the generations that came and went in that 400 years. But think of a nation like China. China is old. It's been there a long time. Yet, God was king before it existed and will be king still after China goes out of existence. He is king forever. He is the eternal king. Now to the king immortal is the next statement. As our immortal king, he is indestructible, incorruptible, imperishable. We often say immortal means you cannot die. And yes, that's true. But it means you can't be corrupted or destroyed either. Corruption, not in the sense of moral corruption, but in the sense of the way rust works on metal here in Michigan. We have salt on the roads, and that salt gets into our the metal of our cars. And at certain temperatures and certain moistures of the atmosphere, that salt starts to corrode your car. And for the first maybe seven, eight years, you don't even notice it. And then one day you begin to see paint popping and then little pinholes and you realize it's been working on that metal for a long time. That's corruption. It's the slow process of corrosion. He doesn't die slowly. He's immortal. Nothing can sap life from him. Absolutely nothing. Paul affirms this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he says, God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The next part of the phrase is, or the verse is, now to the king invisible. Our king cannot be seen by human eyes or any device that humans can devise. In the introduction to his gospel, John writes these words, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that is Jesus, begotten means he was born, the only born God, that is Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained God to us, or he has given us a visual of what God is like. John 1.18. And Paul affirms that Jesus gave us a visual understanding of what God is like when he said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. You see Jesus, you've seen God. Yes the firstborn of all creation. And so no, though none of us can see God, we can see what God is like in Jesus. And that is one of the powerful gifts of the Gospels. For the Gospels present us a picture of God in what Jesus not only said, but what he did and how he did it. Think of Jesus seeing this funeral procession coming out of the city and this 
woman who's a widow, her only son has died. That's her security. That's her provision. And Jesus had compassion on her and raised the boy. That's God. That's a picture of God. There is, however, another side to this. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God agreed to show Moses his glory, but said to him, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live, Exodus 33.20. And I take this to mean that seeing God with human eyes would be so overwhelming for us, so overwhelming to our humanity, to our mind and body, that we would die from having seen God. The next phrase is, now to the king who is the only God. We sing the song, the only wise God. Uh, Some translations include the word wise, but the best translations, according to those who work at translating the Bible, does not include the word wise. So the New American Standard has it as the only God. And there are many so-called gods, that people look to or pray to or depend on or serve in some way. The Bible speaks of money as a competitive God to God. Possibly insurance for us is a competitive God to God. It's our security blanket for the future should something. We don't know if it will, and we don't know what exactly it will be, but should something go wrong, we have this insurance. So there are many so-called gods that we can depend on or serve in some way, but there is only one God. Or as Jesus said in John 17, 3, he is the only true God. Other would-be gods are only would-be gods. They're not true gods. And our God is Yahweh, Jehovah. In the last part of the verse, that verse says, Be honor and glory forever and ever. Unto him be honor and glory forever and ever. And those who recognize, and not everybody does, but those who recognize that God is worthy of honor do so because they see that God's character, his thoughts, his words, his deeds, his ways of dealing with humanity are of such an unequaled quality as to deserve the highest forms of reverence and awe and deference and worship. Deference is a form of submission. And those who give God glory and want God to be glorified by others do so because they see that his words and deeds, his use of power and his judgments are worthy of praise. They are worthy of honor. They are worthy of admiration. So I want to ask these questions. How do you see God? I'm not asking how you speak or sing about God when you're exalting him or praising him. That is just one moment of time in your life. I'm asking how you see God in the good times and the bad. How do you see God when healthy or when sick? How do you see God when you're pain-free or when you're suffering? How do you see God when you're happy or when broken-hearted? Is he the same in all of those settings? How do you really see God? 
Do you see him as worthy of being honored and glorified in any and every situation? How we see God is important. Not just to our Christian faith, but to our health. Spiritual health, mental health, emotional health, social health. How we see God is really important. Verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance or in agreement with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Admittedly, it's not perfectly clear what exactly the command that Paul is referring to is. But it's probable that the command being referred to is found in verses 3 through 5, where Paul reminds Timothy of the two more prominent reasons that they left him in Ephesus. And the they there would be Paul and Silvanus. Remember, all three of them that were working together at one time, and they left Timothy behind. Now, the first reason they left him there was to silence those who were teaching strange doctrines, who were spreading myths as if they were scripture truths, and who were using genealogies to determine one's standing with God and in the church. And the second reason they left Timothy there was to ensure that the goal of the church's teaching would continue to be love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That Paul entrusted this work to Timothy demonstrates Paul's confidence that Timothy was worthy of such a trust. And that's the part of this statement I want to focus on. We see the extent of Paul's trust in Timothy when he explained to the church in Philippi that he hoped to send Timothy in the near future to them. And the reason he wanted to send Timothy was because, in Paul's own words, he had no one else of kindred spirit who would genuinely be concerned for their spiritual well-being. Philippians 2.20. That's a lot of confidence in somebody. Plus, it's pretty sad he had no one else. And here in verse 18 of 1 Timothy, Paul affirms that his trust in Timothy is supported by what was prophesied over him when the church elders prayed over Timothy laid their hands on him before placing them in the ministry. It is a pretty common thing, even in uh, some of the major denominational settings today, when somebody is becoming an elder in a church, or you're a pastor, or you're being ordained, people, the, the leadership of a church or an organization, will pray over you, lay hands on you, and they will pray specific things uh, in hopes that these things will happen in your ministry. And uh, I would take it was a little bit more sincere than what we might experience too often in today's churches. Not that it can't be sincere in some of them. But my guess is that the folks that prayed for Timothy before sending them out were hearing directly from God about what to pray. And they prayed that and they conferred in those prayers gifts into Timothy's life for the ministry that he was going to carry out. And Paul, so Paul is saying... I have confidence in you also. I trust you also because what was prayed over you, what was prophesied about you. And so I have some more questions. 
Are you a trustworthy servant of Jesus Christ? Am I a trustworthy servant? One of the things I think about when I do what I know is wrong and have to confess that to God is that I have not only sinned against God, I've sinned against you as a church. I've not been a trustworthy worker in that moment. And we ought to be. Can God or the leadership of the church or your fellow believers depend on you? Can you depend on me? My role is not a self-serving role. It's to serve you. Can you depend on me? Can the church depend on you? These are questions, in my opinion, worth considering. For as the next part of these, this verse says, we are in a war. And I would say that this war is a war where we are fighting for the honor of God, the purity of the message, the edification of the body, building up one another, and the spiritual health of the church in general. We are in a war. Think of what our culture is doing to war against the age-old teachings and beliefs of the church of Jesus Christ. We're in a war. After confirming his trust in Timothy to carry out his commands in verses 3 through 5, Paul reminds Timothy to use the gifts and abilities given to him by God through those pre-ministry prophecies to fight the good fight. The first thing I want you to notice about the phrase, fight the good fight, is the use of the word the. Paul says, fight the good fight, not fight a good fight. And this indicates that the fight is actually an ongoing battle. It's a war. It is not a single or momentary fight. And the second thing to notice is that the war is not just any war. It is the good war. And there is a difference between good wars and bad wars. People, including Christians, can fight over many things. Some of them are important issues, but many of them are frivolous, temporary, or unworthy of fighting over. And if you have the handout, I included in there a cartoon which maybe God provided. But it just came into uh, my possession this past week. Bill Hannon handed it to Barbie to hand to me. And uh, here it is. I put it in there. It's an example of what Christians can fight over. Being involved with uh, Christian Conciliation, we got into some number of churches that were in, that had a conflict going on within the church. And it was amazing, just amazing what people were fighting over. Bill Kish has testified about his own church back when uh, they had a new pastor and they ended up fighting over words uh, in the title of the church. It is just amazing what Christians fight over. 
There's the good fight, and there's the unworthy fighting. For me, the fight within the church that is worthy, that is important, that is vital, and therefore good, is the fight for the spiritual health of the church. If we are spiritually healthy, everything else should fall into place. If we are spiritually healthy, we will serve as we ought to serve. We will love as we ought to love. We will be parents as we ought to be parents. We will be spouses as we ought to be spouses. We will be workers as we ought to be workers if we are spiritually healthy. And for me, that should be the the thing that we fight for is the spiritual health of the church. We end up fighting for other things. Sometimes numbers, sometimes people wanting to be up front, sometimes people having influence or power, sometimes how the money is used, sometimes this and sometimes that. But I want to encourage you to consider that the good fight, the fight worth fighting for, is the spiritual health of you as an individual, the one sitting next to you and all the rest of us, the spiritual health of the church. Because it is out of godliness that the rest of the good Christian life flows. So I want to ask you, what do you think is worth fighting over? Sadly, many Christians are quick to fight over issues that threaten their sense of security and well-being. Their position or their importance in the church or in the home their ability to control, or their desire for respect, or their freedom to be self-ruled. Having been in the church all of my life, I mean, I was taken there as a baby. Uh, Having been in the church all of my life, I have experienced some number of believers and experienced some number of conflicts and fights. And it is sad what we have fought over truly sad. What do you think is worth fighting over? My finding is that when it comes to fighting the good fight for the spiritual health and well-being of the church, many Christians are slow to start and quick to quit. I've been talking to a gentleman that's not quite my age, but he's been in the church for many years, and he sees that there is a significant problem in his group. And it isn't my role to push him into something that he doesn't want to do, but I have made it my role to at least encourage him to consider that not doing anything is allowing this cancer, this sickness within his group to continue on rather than doing something to try and bring an end to it and put godliness in its place. Slow to start, quick to quit. When the issue threatens them and their sense of need or control, Christians start to fight. They'll fight over minute issues of theology. Separate over that. Split churches over that. 
And when the issue threatens the truth of God's word or the integrity of the message or the spiritual quality of the leadership or the genuineness of worship or the spiritual health of the church in general, too many Christians are not so interested in getting involved. Fight the good fight. There are fights worth fighting for. And there are fights that we should never even get involved in. Before leaving verse 18, I want to point out that Paul's exhortation to fight the good fight is an exhortation to protect and defend what ought to be. So listen carefully to this. I hope it makes sense to you. Fighting the good fight is not fighting to take hold of what God has not given. We aren't fighting an offensive. We are fighting a defensive battle. We are protecting what is. God has given us what is. He's given us the truth. He's given us the way of the Christian life. He's given us the body of Christ, and we are fighting to protect it, not fighting to take something new. When it comes to fighting the good fight, or any fight for that matter, it is important that we remain true to God, true to his word, and the ways of godliness. So we've been talking about fighting within the church. We don't fight much in our church, which is good. I'm grateful for that. It's been a long time since we've really had any internal turmoil within this body. So think about how you might fight at home, if you do. Not that any of you would, but in case. Think about how you might fight at home, or how you might fight with a co-worker, or a neighbor, etc. Try to think this out with me by putting yourself in a setting that, that you can put your teeth into, that you can actually make sense of as we talk about this. Paul begins verse 19 by saying, keeping faith and a good conscience. Why? Because he wants us to fight the good fight in the right way. And the right way is within the boundaries of godliness. The right way is according to what God has already taught us about how we are to think and speak and live. Keeping faith and a good conscience simply means keeping a firm grip, keeping a hold of your faith, and keeping a firm grip on a good conscience as you fight the good fight. To keep a firm grip on faith means keeping a firm grip on your trust in God. We aren't just keeping a firm grip on our religion. We are keeping a firm grip on our trust in God. And I've tried to make this clear over the years. Wherever we distrust God, we will part ways with the word and ways of God. We will start to go our own way wherever we distrust God. So yes, our faith does include the whole religious structure, but keeping a firm grip on faith means keeping a firm grip on your trust in God. Your trust in God to equip you, to empower you, to sustain you to bring good out of the individual battles and to bring good out of the war, to trust God to know what he's talking about and that his ways actually work, even though you may be losing in the moment. Or in other words, keeping a firm grip on faith 
means using only godly ways and means when fighting. You fight fair? Well, it's good if you do. Do you fight godly? That's even better. To keep a firm grip on a good conscience means refusing to compromise what you know is right and good so that you do not go against what a good conscience would approve or do what a good conscience would condemn. So you don't go against what a good conscience would approve or you don't do what it would condemn. That's keeping a firm grip on a good conscience. Possibly we can sum this up this way. When fighting the good fight, or when fighting any fight, let's apply this across the board, do not compromise your faith or your conscience so that you do not stray from the truth of God's word and you do not abandon love and you do not neglect compassion and you do not forget mercy and that you never, regardless of how bad things look, resort to ungodly ways or use ungodly means to win a battle or to protect yourself in the battle. Without question, fighting according to these rules and conditions requires a trust in God like David's trust in God when he fought Goliath. When you're fighting, the enemy can seem huge They might even appear overpowering. If you don't have the kind of trust in God that David had when he went up against Goliath, it's very easy to forsake trust in God and fall back on trust in self. And again, once you do that, you've stepped outside the boundaries of godliness and you are going your own way. I am encouraging you to trust that the all-powerful, all-wise, always-present, and always-victorious God is backing you up. Picture him just like David must have pictured him. David was standing there from the, the human perspective all alone, but he saw God with him. See God with you. In the second half of verse 19, Paul makes it clear That keeping a firm grip on faith and a good conscience when fighting the good fight is vital because some have rejected complete trust in God and the importance of a good conscience. They've rejected that. And as a result, they have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith or in regard to their Christian life. I hope to make this really clear. War has a powerful effect on those doing the fighting, even if it is a good war. I am a Vietnam-aged person. I have friends that went to Vietnam. I did not. I don't have any friends that went to Vietnam who didn't come home changed by the experience. And none of them changed for the better. They've all struggled. They've They've all had hardship and difficulties because of what they went through. I grew up with a guy, he was in the church just like I was, and uh, a lot of us would enjoy going to his home. He was the army guy. 
And we would go to his house after church on a Sunday and the whole afternoon play army in his backyard, which was like a forest. Great times. And of course, he joined the Marines, and he was Mr. Marine. He really was. But he was truly changed. War has a powerful effect on those doing the fighting. And it has an effect on you and I, even if we're just fighting with our spouse or fighting with our kids. And those powerful effects can change us. And so if we are not vigilant, if we are not careful about keeping a firm grip on our faith, and our good conscience, then what we see and experience on the battlefield will likely lead to some measure of distrust of God and a compromised conscience. If not in the fight, then after we walk away from it. I have no idea what the numbers are, but it's got to be larger than any of us suspect. How many people have left the church and walked away from God because of fighting in the church? How many? Churches have split. Yes, and some went this way and some went that way and some left church and God altogether. We have to be vigilant. We have to be careful if we are going to keep a firm grip on our faith and a good conscience. Because once we've allowed distrust of God to enter in, and once we have compromised our good conscience, we open ourselves. We open ourselves to using all sorts of ungodly ways and means in an effort to win battle after battle in order to win the war. And that to our own destruction. So let me ask, Are you aware of how easily and even quickly fighting with those around you, even when it is for a good cause, how easily and quickly it can change your demeanor, your thinking, your attitude, your words, and your actions from what is godly to what is unloving, unkind, mean-spirited, and therefore ungodly? I've said many things to Barbie over the years and not all of them good but there is a statement I made to her I wish I could take back I'm sorry I ever said it I'll never tell you what it was but to this day I'm sorry I said it and I said it because I was angry I was fighting for what I thought was my life turns out it wasn't I'm still alive I'm still here. But I said a phrase that I wish I would have never said. Why? Because that's what happens in war if we are not careful. Don't ever think that you can come out of battle as godly as you went in without intentionally keeping a firm grip on your faith and a good conscience. If you aren't intentional about that when you're fighting, the odds are you're going to step outside the boundaries of godliness and begin to use ungodly means. Finally, Paul provides two examples of Christians who suffered shipwreck 
And uh, he tells us about this situation. They are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who Paul handed over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. I just want to make some comments about that statement that he makes there. First, we can reasonably conclude from the context that Hymenaeus and Alexander were fighting for the acceptance of their strange doctrines, for the acceptance of myths as biblical truths, and for the use of genealogies to determine one's standing in the church and with God. Now, if this is correct, I think it is, but I can't guarantee it is. But if this is correct, then we can conclude they were fighting a wrong fight in an ungodly way. And the proof that they were fighting the wrong fight comes from verses 3 to 5, where Paul says to Timothy, look, we left you there to put an end to this. They're doing the wrong thing. So here they are fighting for their uh, points to be made, their theology to be taught, their doctrines to get across, their view of what's important, and it's the wrong fight. And the proof that they were fighting in ungodly ways is seen in Paul's confirmation that they were uh, fighting in ways that left them to distrust God rather than holding on to their faith and to compromise their conscience rather than keeping a good one. As to their blasphemy, we can only guess, this is only a guess on my part, we can only guess that Paul is referring to their misrepresentations of God's character, his ways and words that would lead other Christians to think and speak of God as if he is imperfect or as if he has some measure of evil in him or as if he is not fully trustworthy or in other words as if there is something in God or something God does or doesn't do that can be used as a reason to think less of him it was blasphemy to say that what Jesus was doing he did by the power of the devil It could very well be blasphemy when we think less of God than we ought. When we think he is defective in some way. That he is failing in some way. That he is wrong. And finally, handing Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan probably means removing them from church life so as to end their influence within the church. They weren't listening. They weren't getting the message. They weren't being quiet. They'd been dealt with, but they weren't quitting. They weren't giving up. And so to hand them over to Satan probably means removing them from church life in order to end their influence within the church. That would also mean the church's influence on them would come to an end. And they would be left to their own self-destructive ways, which in time, hopefully, would cause them to experience the destructive effects of their own foolishness. Life would turn against them, not because life wanted to, but because they turned life against themselves by their choices and behavior. And hopefully, 
they would begin to see that the devil's only goal is to bring them with him into hell. He was not out to do them any good. I want to conclude with these thoughts. Never underestimate the importance of your view of God. How you see God powerfully influences how you see yourself in relation to God, how you relate to God, the degree to which you trust God, and the degree to which you live in accordance to God's will and his word. How you see God affects all those things. Secondly, never underestimate the power of fighting with others, the power of that to change you. So I urge you to take Paul's advice, intentionally cling to God and his ways while fighting so that the fighting does not change you for the worse. Because if it does, it could lead to you being shipwrecked in your faith. And finally, when fighting the good fight or when fighting any fight, do not compromise your faith or your conscience. Be careful of that. Do not stray from the truth of God's word. Do not abandon love. Do not neglect compassion. Do not forget mercy. And never, regardless of how bad things look, never resort to ungodly ways or use ungodly means just to win a battle or to protect yourself when fighting.